0: Hey, raw beauty crew. Let's take a moment to just do a little checkup from the neck up. We haven't done this in way too long. We're almost halfway through the summer, so it feels like a great moment to just pause and do a little inner scan. Check in on our mental well-being, our physical well-being. See how things are going. A little reminder that you have the capacity to create whatever life you want for yourself, but you have to pop into the driver's seat. I'm so excited for today's guest. She is an expert when it comes to mental health and well-being, primarily through her lived experience. She is 20 years old, and I swear she's been through more in her life already than many of us have been. Sadie Sutton is joining me. She is the podcast host of She Persisted and just an incredibly, incredibly inspiring individual. I'm so excited to talk to Sadie about her own journey through severe depression. She was in an intensive treatment program for over a year, and she speaks about her experience and what helped her, including something called DBT, her relationship with alcohol, caffeine, and how she ultimately got through this really, really dark time. This episode is filled with so many tidbits, and as always, I made a summary page, a one-page document just outlining the key takeaways from this conversation and the initial steps that Sadie recommends for everyone. She was also kind enough to send us some information about DBT, so you'll hear more about that later on in the episode, but if you would like those tools, make sure you click the link down below to grab those. All right, let's dive in. Sadie, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: So as I just said, you have lived some life in your two decades here on Earth. When would you say your mental health journey really began?
1: So it's interesting. Hindsight's always 20-20 with these things. You can be like, oh, well, this belief started at this point and that really didn't help my self-esteem or that was impacting my relationships. But I remember getting to a point where I was halfway through eighth grade and I was just extremely depressed. I didn't know how I'd gotten to that point. It really started creeping up on me over many years at that point. And because I wasn't aware of unhealthy patterns and ways to speak to myself or unhealthy patterns with my sleep schedule or my relationships, I wasn't aware of these red flags, if you want to call them that. I just knew that I had slowly transitioned into this point where I was really severely depressed. My sleep was very disrupted. I had cut myself off from a lot of my friends. There was a lot of conflict with my family. I had so much self-hatred and was just at such a low point mentally. And I also was blinders on, just focused on what was right in front of me. I didn't realize that I was depressed because this had crept up slow, slowly. I thought this was just how my brain worked, which I think can be common for a lot of teens. If you start struggling with mental health issues at a young age, you think that, A, this must just be your baseline and your neutral and that you're not capable of anything else. And then B, it's really challenging when you want to recover because you don't know what you're working towards. Because you're like, I don't remember this time where I was happy and everything was great and my life was amazing. So what am I even motivated to try and recover to? And that was something I struggled with a lot later on in my treatment journeys, I'm sure we'll get to. But I remember I got to a point in the middle of my eighth grade year where I was really struggling with... Um, low self-esteem, low energy. I remember I was like really tired and lethargic all the time. I wasn't really sleeping, unhealthy relationships, really negative ways of talking to myself. I wasn't really eating all of these different patterns that you see with depression. And I remember my mom brought me to my pediatrician, which when I went, I was like, why are we going to the pediatrician? But it's a really great place to start if you're a parent and you're like, I have no idea what to do because they have a whole network of psychiatrists and therapists and resources that they can direct you to. And they're also getting so much better. I've noticed this change even as I've gotten older at screening for mental health issues because they're one of the only clinicians that sees you every single year as a teen. And so it's a great place to start. And even now they're still checking. They're like, how's your mental health going? Like they're on it. And it's a great place to keep a baseline and have someone that's continually checking in outside of the family. And so we went to the pediatrician and I remember he asked me like the basic depression questionnaire. And I remember starting to cry because I'd never heard someone explain exactly what I was feeling. Like you have lost interest in things you used to enjoy. You're more tearful. Your sleep is disrupted. Your meals are disrupted. You feel like no one understands you. All of these different things that I thought were just part of me, he was explaining but said I was depressed. And so I went to a psychiatrist appointment. And at that point, I had really shut down with my ability to communicate with my parents, to ask for help. I had no idea that what I was experiencing was depression and there was no asking for help or saying, I don't think I'm okay. And so I ended up getting hospitalized for the first time at that point when I was 13. I was in the hospital for seven to 10 days. I can't remember exactly how long. Really just trying to get things back to a point where I was looped into some resources and there was some line of communication about how I was doing and where I was at because I had struggled with self-harm around this time. And so because there was no line of communication between me and my parents or therapists or any of these people, they're like we just know she's extremely depressed and she's not talking and we have no idea what's going on here. So that was really like the beginning of my treatment journey. After that, I did an intensive outpatient program and started the journey of trying everything you can imagine a little bit if you've been Treatment or tried to pursue therapy or mental health support, you know, is like you do family therapy, you do intensive outpatient, you do group therapy, you do CBT and DBT and all these things that we'll dive into. But I really didn't believe it was going to work because I still thought that this was just how my brain worked. And I was so stuck in the narrative that I was deserving of being depressed. I didn't understand why I was struggling so much because I hadn't gone through some big trauma or some big change in my life. It felt like I was depressed for no reason. And when I look back, I'm like, okay, I can kind of understand how I got to that point because... It was very terrible, but I was living my life under the belief that I wasn't deserving of love from anyone, whether it was my parents or my friends. And we're wired for connection. It's absolutely essential for us to thrive. And so... If you're looking through the world through the belief that you're not deserving of those connections, but also that everyone doesn't really want to get to know you or love you or support you, it's really isolating and really challenging. I also believe that I was never going to be good enough for my parents and then that I wasn't capable of recovery because I'd always felt this way. And again, when you're in that headspace of being depressed... There's a lot of clouding of reality where you're like, I've always felt this way. Of course, I didn't always feel that way for my entire life, but that's what it feels like. You can't see past what you're experiencing. It's just so incredibly overwhelming. And there's a lot of thought distortions that take place there. And so knowing those beliefs were what were at play and just wanting someone to know that I wasn't okay and acknowledge this giant, heavy, overwhelming thing that I was experiencing and struggling to get through the day with, a lot of the next year of outpatient treatment was just trying to get someone to validate that. And that was struggling with self-harm and suicidal ideation and all these things because I didn't feel like I was seen to the degree that I was struggling. I was just in so much pain. And so did all the things, outpatient, more hospitalizations, um, Everything you can imagine when you try and get support locally and it wasn't working because I didn't believe that it was going to. I didn't think that I was deserving of recovering. I thought I was meant to be this way. And so. In the middle of my freshman year of high school, my treatment team, my parents kind of came to the conclusion that something had to shift. What we were trying wasn't working. I tried all of these options multiple times and things weren't shifting. And so they decided that the best next option was going to be a residential program and a more intensive level of treatment. And so they found this program right outside of Boston called Three East at McLean Hospital. And McLean has programs for all ages and all different challenges, but this one is for teens that are struggling with depression and anxiety and the treatment that they use is dialectical behavioral therapy. And what made it really unique is that DBT is one of the only evidence-based treatments for teens that struggle with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation and family challenges and all these other things that were kind of in my orbit. But it's very unique in the treatment field because... I have really strong outcomes for this demographic. And it was originally developed for adults that were struggling with borderline personality disorder and were also really suicidal. And it was this really interesting population of patients because the therapist didn't actually want to work with them because there was a lot of suicide attempts and they were so incredibly hopeless. They didn't want to be there. They didn't want to invest in themselves. And they were really like a risky type of patient to bring on. And The other interesting thing that the woman that developed DBT, Marsha Linehan, encountered when she was working with them is that if you told them to accept what they were going through, they would say, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't my fault. Why do I have to accept this? Like, you can't help me. And if you told them to change what they were going through, they're like, so you're saying this is my fault and I have to fix all of these problems. And I didn't create this for myself. Like, what are you talking about that I have to change all these things? And so DBT and dialectical behavioral therapy is a lot about these dialectics and these ideas of these two opposing things that can be true at the same time. So acceptance and change. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that are at the core of the treatment, but it's things like your truth can be true and someone else's truth can be true at the same time. And you can be trying your hardest and you can still do better. And the other thing that really appealed and became really amazing as I was immersed in this world of dbt is that it's really concrete it's not like you're going into a therapist's office and they're like well what do you think is wrong like what can you do to solve this it's like you feel anxious you use this skill you feel depressed this is the skill we're using you need to advocate for a resource say this exact thing And for someone who's like a big planner and like a perfectionist and anxiety prone, this was great because it was like, I have skills in my toolbox that I can utilize. And then I built this trust in myself that when these overwhelming big emotions come up, I'm able to implement these things to help work through those emotions in a healthy way. And so I ended up being there for 14 weeks and it was crazy because I went in suicidally depressed and overwhelmed and anxious and I'd been hospitalized four times and I had a suicide attempt and all these things. And 14 weeks later, I was for the first time that I could remember no longer suicidal. And while I was still anxious, I had skills to cope with that. And I felt like I could understand what was going on. And I was hopeful for the first time. I remember when I woke up for the first time and didn't feel depressed. I was like, this is weird. (laughs) Like what is going on in the morning that I'm not suddenly like hating everything that's in my immediate view. And so I ended up going to a therapeutic boarding school for 14 months after that to kind of maintain the progress. And then I came home and started junior year of high school at a normal school, just such a shift from the beginning of my high school experience, because it was so filled with treatment and appointments and my mental health. And so to be able to do the normal high school experience was huge. And then I applied to Penn for their psychology program because they have an incredible staff and work that's being done there. And so I'm now an incoming junior at the University of Pennsylvania and still doing the podcast which I started at the end of treatment, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's been a wild ride.
0: (laughs) Wow, I have full goosebumps. And I mean, your whole story, the amount of strength and courage, that it takes to ride through those big waves is really, really profound. So I'm so glad that you had the support to get through it. I know that there are so many kids these days and youth who are really struggling. And this is an epidemic that is impacting so many, not just the individuals who are struggling with anxiety and depression or mental health, but their entire family and the whole Mm. circle as well. over. So I'd love to just back up for a second. You said that there was some family conflict mm-hmm. and without you having to air everything out, what
1: does that mean? Yeah. So I, again, had this belief system that I was never going to be good enough for my parents. And I think that we still live in a society where when you're struggling to cope with the emotions that are arising. And when you feel really negatively about yourself, it's not something that you want to come forward and broadcast. You want to be like, I'm super depressed and I really hate this life that I'm living and I don't feel good about myself. Like that's something that's very challenging to voice. And so there was this combination of this belief of I'm not good enough and then not wanting to almost make that worse by asking for help. And there's this interesting philosophy in DBT. It's like a form of emotional vulnerability, but you get it an invalidating environment from having an individual who struggles to cope with their emotions. And that could be biological, like you are more sensitive to what you're experiencing. It could be how you're coping with those emotions. It can also be like the narrative in your head around how you are experiencing those emotions, and emotions are bad or that they need to be like suppressed. And then combining that with an invalidating environment, whether it's intentional or not intentional can lead to a huge difficulty in regulating emotions and feeling validated long-term. And I think validation is one of those things that we all need, whether we're getting it internally or externally. And when you're struggling, it's almost like you need it more because you know how much you're going through on a day-to-day basis. And all you want is for someone to acknowledge that and say, I can't even believe you're here today because you must be in so much pain and you're doing this all day, every day. And so and that was really a big point of contention between me and my parents. And I was really struggling a lot and struggling to voice that. And in turn, they couldn't validate. And I think another thing that makes DBT unique is that there's that family involvement, which is that the family is learning the skills alongside the teen. And so mm-hmm. the parents are going to skills group and they're getting better at validating while the teen is getting better at being vulnerable. Yes. So it was globally like a lack of skills on both parts. I wasn't expressing what I was experiencing, I was really shut off. So they didn't know how to support me. And they didn't know how to validate. And so I also think that when you are depressed, you're a lot more emotional. You're more snappy or irritable. Like all of these things are part of that diagnosis and that presentation. And so of course that leads to conflict. But the biggest thing was I struggled to be vulnerable about what I was experiencing and asked for help. They didn't have the skills to validate and didn't know what to validate because I wasn't coming to them and saying, this is what I'm experiencing and I need help. So if we have any parents or you know,
0: friends of an individual that is struggling. Do you have any concrete advice on how to validate the experience of somebody who's struggling with mental health?
1: Absolutely, so I always share the story of my dad before and after we went to treatment, because it's so funny. And so I slept on my parents' floor for like six months when I was in high school because I was struggling with suicidal ideation and I was having all these like anxiety nightmares and they didn't trust me to be in my room by myself. And so I had this little like mattress on the floor next to their bed and I'd go in overnight, go to sleep, and then they'd wake up in the morning and they'd start their days. And I would be laying there like comatose, depressed, not going anywhere. And the way that my dad would approach this is he would first play music on like volume ten on the Amazon Echo, and he'd be like symphony music volume ten. I was still lay there comatose, if not a reaction. Like why would this make me get out of bed? And then he'd come in over and pick Sadie. If you don't get up today, you're going to miss something really important at school and then you're going to fall behind and then you're not going to be able to get good grades and then you can't get into college and then you're not going to be able to get a job and then your life is going to be a mess. And so that also didn't work to get me out of bed, but (laughs) these were ways that he was trying to like snap me out of it or get me to move and get that objective met. And then after we went to treatment, there was a huge shift in how he validated. He learned that skill um, when we were at residential and I'll give like specific tips there. But one of the biggest things was he would just make space for what I was experiencing, even if he had never felt that depressed, or even if he had never had those mental health challenges. So he'd say, I don't know exactly what you're experiencing, but you must be in a lot of pain. And this must be really overwhelming. And I just want you to know that I see... You. And for someone who just wants to be seen, that is like the most amazing thing to hear from someone, especially who you want validation from and approval. And we look up to our parents for that support. And so... The other thing that he would also do is there is this thing in DPT called a diary card where you're tracking your emotions and your skills usage and any behaviors they might be keeping an eye on. And so while he couldn't understand exactly what was going on with how depressed I was, he was able to ask me how things were on my diary card. And I'd be like, well, I'm like an eight out of 10 for the most depressed I've ever felt today. And I'm at like a nine out of 10 for anxiety. And for him to be like, wow, like we're just sitting here at lunch and she's at a nine out of 10 for anxiety. Like I can't even imagine what that would be like. And so depending on the parent and what resonates, like the numbers can be helpful. And then also like the specific skills, but validation is the concept where you can create space and appreciate someone's experience even without having experienced it yourself or agreeing with it. And one of the best examples is like politics, because you can like so genuinely disagree with who someone supports or their view on life. But you can say like, I understand why you would believe that, or that makes sense that you support that person. And so When we validate, we're validating emotions, thoughts, beliefs. And again, you don't have to agree with things. We don't have to validate behaviors, but you can validate why someone's lived experience might lead them to believe something or experience an emotion, you're creating space for it. And so there's different levels of validation and there's little things like making eye contact and paying attention to their facial expressions and then reflecting back to them what they're saying. And just like basically verbatim repeating, like you're saying that like you're really stressed about this final and that you have a lot going on. Like just to hear that someone's truly listening is amazing then the final step is like mind reading they call it so it would be sitting there in that conversation even though the person's not voicing that they're really struggling saying like you must be in a lot of pain and i just want you to know that i see that and i might not understand it, but i know that you're struggling and it must be really overwhelming so it's creating space for those emotions and it's incredibly effective and powerful in the context of relationships Mm,
0: Wow. What a journey your parents have both been on as well. And so beautiful to see the learning that occurred. I was hospitalized with an eating disorder back when I was 15, 16 years old. And I remember such a similar story with my dad. My mom was saying like, I think she has an eating disorder. We're getting feedback from her teachers. And my dad was very much, no, she's fine. Like she probably just needs to do a bit more exercise to work up her appetite. (laughs) And he would come to me and be like, can you just eat something? Like you're really stressing your mom out. And if you don't eat something, then you're not gonna be able to continue on with dance. Like all of the things that you're talking about Mm -hmm. doing. And whether it's your dad or mom coming to you with this type of advice, of course, the intention is always good. They're thinking about like what makes me feel motivated and how do I push my kid forward or make them feel enthused about this or that. I have heard so many times this similar story, especially with dads. And I have to wonder whether or not it's because boys and men are taught from such a young age to push aside their feelings and their emotions and to just get down to business, to just do the work. And so they haven't been given the same permission to to feel the feelings or to hold space for somebody else's feelings.
1: Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It's interesting. This is where like the psychology nerd comes out and all, all the classes about all the things because we know that women and men experience emotions differently. And women are actually like more tuned to subtle emotion changes and more perceptive of when people are experiencing emotions. So I think that's one part of it, that women are actually more aware of the emotions that are coming up. They're also more wired to talk about them. When you see how women and men express emotions, women much more often express those negative or challenging emotions to each other and like a community building exercise almost. That's what we're wired to do. You see it a lot. Men don't work that way. And so I think it's a combination of like those evolutionary and biological aspects. I think it's also like the societal programming that men don't express that vulnerability as frequently. It's not as normalized. It's not as socialized. And then I think there's also the aspect of like being a mom and having so much like care and such a protective nature over your kid and being so in tune with their struggle. And obviously I can't speak to this from my own experience, but seeing my mom navigate through watching me struggle, there was just this really intense set of emotions of like my kid is struggling and I don't know how to help them and like their pain is my thing type Mm -hmm. of situation. And so it's a whole lot of challenges all wrapped into one. But it is funny because in treatment, interacting with a lot of teens and a lot of dads, it definitely is a common experience for sure.
0: So what advice would you have for somebody who's listening to this right now, And they're nodding their head thinking, wow, she's describing a lot of the symptoms that I've experienced. Maybe it's not as intense, but a feeling of not being able to get out of bed very easily in the morning, a lot of self-deprecating thoughts, lack of belief in oneself, losing interest in things that you've once enjoyed, or that feeling of anxiety. Where would you recommend that people begin in looking for help?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting, like, I don't even know what type of mental exercise it would be, but whenever you feel like your mental health challenges aren't as bad as someone else, there's almost like a resistance to access resources or ask for help. And one of the biggest things that I'm always saying and talking about it is like, no, that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing because you should be saying, my mental health challenges maybe aren't as severe. So this is the perfect time to get support. And it's more likely that these resources will work because if these DBT skills work for this population of adults that are suicidally depressed and no therapist will work with them and they have borderline personality disorder and their life is falling apart, if I'm experiencing anxiety, this is a great skill to apply because it's definitely gonna work because I'm anxious about my exam. And I think if we were to rethink our mental health challenges that way, There would be a world of a difference in utilizing resources and learning new skills and asking for help rather than waiting till it gets worse. And I remember hearing this statistic in my abnormal psychology class that when you have really extreme depression and it's like, let's say like an eight or a nine out of 10, it's debilitating. You can't get out of bed. You can't go to work. It's interfering with your life. The frequency at which you pursue treatment and pursue support is pretty quick it's interfering with your ability to function. So you're getting help, you're getting a therapist, your community is wrapping around you, getting the resources they need. So it's like a couple months to a year of getting that support. Whereas when you have like high functioning but low intensity depression, like you have these really negative thought patterns, you're struggling with the motivation to get out of bed and do these things, but you're still showing up, even if it's really mentally challenging... It takes years to be able to get that support and truly access those resources. So we have to kind of reframe what severe looks like. Is it not being able to get out of bed, but getting support really quickly? Or is it struggling for years because you didn't get access to the resources you needed to because it wasn't bad enough? And of course, it's all subjective and maybe one subjectively might be more overwhelming in the moment. But when you think about like, do I want to struggle with this for years versus get support because it's gotten bad in the moment, I would say get support when you're struggling rather than waiting and letting it go on for a lot longer. So that's an interesting thing that we see in the field of mental health and and that severity. But As far as resources, there's a lot of different options. And if you're a teen and you're a parent that's like, I don't know what to do, the pediatrician is always a great place to start. Once you have met with your pediatrician, you're likely going to be referred to like a therapist or a psychiatrist or a mental health provider in your area. And everyone has different opinions on meds and all of these different things. But I do think that there is a lot of benefit in having both those individuals on your team. Because they offer different perspectives. And I find that, like, if I'm meeting with a therapist to Go over like challenges that I'm having on a week to week basis, and I got in this argument, or I'm so stressed about this thing, or I really want to switch this behavior. Like, I'm keep snoozing my alarm 40,000 times. That's what I'm working on week to week with the therapist. But if I'm meeting with this psychiatrist on like a quarterly basis, they're the ones like, okay, like, big picture, how is your mood? Are things better? Are things worse? So, there's both benefits. And I think that's something that people sometimes forget and lose when they're like, I just want to do therapy. Like, I don't want to see a psychiatrist. But when it comes to actual resources that you can utilize, I always recommend DBT or an evidence-based therapy because we have to check everything against our beliefs about physical health because unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigma in the mental health world. And so I think about like, if you broke a leg, would you be like, you know, this isn't really evidence-based, but this doctor said it probably will work. So like, should I try this new treatment instead of getting a cast? You'd be like, absolutely not. Like I'm getting a cast, like, because we know it works. And so the same thing is true for mental health. We know that DBT is proven to be effective in this certain demographic, or CBT is really effective with anxiety and OCD. And so looking to see what treatments are clinically proven to be effective. And you don't have to read the studies. There's a lot of articles online being like, this is evidence-based. This is still being tested, or it's a little bit less evidence-based. And you can also go to a practitioner or your pediatrician and be like, okay, like, what are the options here and what is evidence-based? So that would be the number one thing is make sure that you are giving yourself the best chance for recovery by using treatments that are proven to be effective and that work for what you're struggling with. The one last thing I'll say on like getting support is that once you're in the treatment world, and I did this interview with Dr. Eliza Pressman, who is a psychologist, and she was like, I worry less about the kids that are in treatment and struggling than the kids that aren't. Because once you're in that world, like people are checking in on you, they're recommending resources, they're your advocate to your parents, and you're kind of like, you've got those people in your corner. And so it's like, you go to the pediatrician, you get that referral, and then I'm like, okay, they're good. They're getting support now. It's just that first step of asking for help, which is so incredibly difficult.
0: Have you heard of any things that you're like, oh my, why are
1: people suggesting this? There's a lot. There's unfortunately a huge lack of regulation in teen treatment. And there's this whole thing called the trouble teen industry, which is a for-profit part of the treatment world that isn't evidence-based. So it's things called wilderness programs, therapeutic boarding schools, still today conversion programs, really religious-based treatment programs, all these things that are non-evidence-based don't have physicians on staff. And there's a lot of red flags there that you can be aware of. And the most heartbreaking part is that they're advertising to parents that just want an answer. And they're saying, we can help your kid. We can fix your kid. Like we got this. We are exactly what you're looking for. And so I'm never want to be in the position of like to the parents, how did you not know? Because all they want is to help their kid. And these people are saying, we can do that. But there's a whole lot of things that go on there that are questionable. One is that to get to a lot of these wilderness programs, there's this thing called like getting gooned where people show up in your house in the middle of the night. They take you across state borders to this program. And a lot of the kids, girls, describe it as literally being kidnapped because people come to your room, they take you out of your house at three in the morning and take you to Utah or Nevada or one of these states where there's less regulation and these programs take place. And then you're in the woods for six to eight weeks and you don't shower and you are carrying everything on your back and hiking 12 miles a day. What? How is this supposed to help anxiety and depression? Exactly. It's really interesting. And when I think about like, okay, like how could they justify this. I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And like, if you break down someone's hierarchy of needs enough, they'll have to rebuild it in a way that you're like, facilitating so you're taking away their physical safety you're taking away their relationships and all these other things and then when it comes to like therapeutic boarding schools and not the in the woods living by yourself for weeks on end which by the way these programs which paris hilton went to one of these and you hear people talking about them more often now wait did paris go to the wilderness one or the therapeutic house She went to a place called Provo Canyon, which kind of is an in-between. It was like a therapeutic boarding school and it's still open, which is crazy. And she was like abused and assaulted there. And so she does a lot of work to advocate for that and other programs being closed. But it's a billion dollar industry. There's like 10,000 kids in these programs at any given time. It's insane. But like going to these programs, there's red flags. And what's great is that I had the experience of going to McLean, which is evidence-based and was so effective. And they use the best of the best practices and at therapeutic boarding school where things are different. So like at McLean, you can call your parents whenever you want to. My parents will pick up my call 14 times a day, but I could try calling them if I wanted to at the therapeutic boarding school. You couldn't call your parents until about like three months into the program when you earn the privilege of a five-minute phone call once a week. So like there's a huge difference in things like that. Or like, are there psychologists on campus? Are there psychiatrists that are routinely on campus? Like what is the education that they're actually offering at these schools? What type of therapy are you using? Because they're not using DBT. They're not adhering to these really strict evidence-based treatment modalities. And so being aware, and there's a really amazing foundation called Breaking Code Silence that works to kind of get these programs shut down and get regulation made because what's really unfortunate, especially in the wilderness programs, is that kids die at these places from being in the woods and not having proper health care or from being restrained and all these really heartbreaking and terrible things. And so They do have a list on their website of like what red flags to look for in a program and like what questions to ask and then also what to look for with evidence-based programs and how to find really great support. And that's what's so unfortunate about this whole thing is I found that the hardest part of my journey was asking for help. And what's so heartbreaking is like a teen asks for help and then you get the exact opposite of help, which can be really challenging, but there are amazing resources out there. It's just about finding them. I can't even believe that this is
0: a thing. It just makes me feel so hopeless about the state of the world. So for somebody who's in that space where they're not necessarily going to an inpatient treatment program or into the hospital, Mm -hmm. but they are listening and recognizing that they're not exactly in a state that is ideal. Yeah. What are some things that they can begin doing? We've gone to the doctor. Most likely a therapist has been enrolled. I know... You know, when you're at the bottom of the barrel and you're at like that nine out of 10 on a depression scale or anxiety, it's hard to get yourself even outside for a walk or outside of the house. But say we're at more of like a four or five or a six. What would you recommend as some tools for somebody who's in that state?
1: Yeah, there are two things that I found to be helpful and that I kind of implemented along my treatment journey. One is when you're at that like nine out of 10 bottom of the barrel spot is to not make things worse. And just mentally kind of set yourself up for the approach of like, I'm not even going to focus on going on that walk. I'm not going to try and make things better for myself. I'm not going to go and call this therapist and like begin this process of looking for evidence-based treatment programs. I'm not going to like go on a run because I read online that it's good for my endorphins. All we're focusing on is not making things worse. So we're not going to use ineffective coping mechanisms. We're not going to avoid taking care of like our physical needs like sleeping or eating or getting some degree of movement even if it's like walking to the kitchen to make yourself a nutritious meal. So just don't make things worse because as you get into the treatment world and as you start struggling, when you introduce these unhealthy coping mechanisms, things just get a whole lot more complicated for yourself. Mm. And then it's not just like, how can I improve my mood but how can I undo this habit cycle of this really unhealthy coping mechanism that I'm now using to stabilize myself. So, that is one thing mentally when I'm having a bad day where I'm like, I can do this. Like, this is an easy thing that I can agree and commit myself to doing. It's not overwhelming. I'm just not going to make things worse. And then the other thing when I'm like, okay, I'm motivated. I can do this. I can implement my skills. Also, long term is the 80 20 rule, but for your mental health. And everyone talks about this with like, diet or nutrition, or they'll talk about like partying versus like living their balanced lifestyle. You see it all the time on TikTok. But I love it for mental health because it's what you're doing if you're living like a Balanced and effective mentally well lifestyle. And so what you're doing is 80% of the time you're talking to yourself positively, you're not beating yourself up, you're asking for help, you're spending time with your community, you're eating balanced, you're getting movement, you're sleeping enough, you're using your coping skills. And then 20% of the time, maybe you have that day where you beat yourself up, whatever it is that maybe is tied to your mental health. Maybe you're staying home from school or you skipped work because it was just a really bad day. So 20% of the time, there are those negative things that maybe are moving you down when it comes to your mental health. It's like the one step backwards. But if you keep up that 80% and really limit those steps backwards to 20%, no matter what, you're on that positive trajectory and you're improving and you're moving in the right direction. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It's not all or nothing. Like, I will never speak negatively to myself again. Okay, you had a negative thought. Like, let's do five more positive thoughts in the mirror. It's very manageable and it's very doable. And you also build it into your life. So you're like, okay, I go to school every day. I have my night routine. I have my morning routine. I know that these are nutritious meals. I know that I'm getting movement. I know that I'm seeing my friends. And as you build that into your routine and your schedule, that 80% becomes a lot more manageable to just go through the motions and do and still keep yourself on the right track without having to put in like that thought process and that effort every single day. Like, okay, I want to feel better. Like every single choice point, how can I make myself feel better? Almost putting yourself on autopilot, but towards better mental health. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, I love that. I'd love to get your feedback from a mental health perspective on a few things. So first of all, alcohol. You're 20. Mm -hmm. Probably lots of people around you are drinking, smoking marijuana, all of it. What are your thoughts? How do you navigate that yourself?
1: I think it's interesting. I... I've been in a lot of treatment and seen a lot of people that really struggle with substance use, or that was a really big part of their journey was using that as a a maladaptive coping mechanism. It's definitely something people do at college. And if your group of friends are doing that and you're like adamantly very against it, and you're like, I will not be around you if you're drinking, it probably will not help you build that relationship. Whereas if you guys do whatever you want, I'm just going to hang out, that could be more conducive to like building that friendship and maintaining that friendship. When we look at the data and the science of like what substance use does to the brain, especially at this age, it's not good. It's not great, but also isn't good as like the time we wake up in the morning to go to school because teens have like a later circadian rhythm. Caffeine isn't good. Most teens are drinking a lot of caffeine. Sleep deprivation isn't good. Most teens are sleep deprived. So there's a lot of things that we're doing that aren't conducive to mental health, whether it's social media or technology use or the stress that we're putting ourselves through. And so it's kind of like you're picking your poison. And again, it's that 80, 20% rule of like 80% of the time I'm doing things that are good for my mental health and are moving me in the right direction. And the 20% where like, I'm so exhausted, I need my third cup of coffee today. I just am not gonna make it through the day. There's your 20%. And I think that can be helpful if there isn't a negative relationship with the substance. And if there is, especially if you have a history of mental health issues, to be really, really aware of that and really, really mindful of that and asking for help. And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned working on the podcast and hearing people's stories, is that it's really not about the substance itself. It's about using it as a strategy. And it's about the mental health issues that underlie the reason why you're using the substance. Mm. So if you're struggling with mental health, it's something to be aware of. Just like if you have a history of struggling with an eating disorder, going on a diet, you'd be like, I'm really going to need to be mindful here because this probably isn't Something that I'll experience the same way as like the average person. Same thing is true for substances. And so just being really aware of that, setting boundaries for yourself and also being really ready to like humble yourself and ask for help if it goes badly. Mm. Because that's, I think, something that people struggle with. If it doesn't go well, then being like, I have to admit that I failed in this regard or that I can't use this substance like the other, my friends and my peers can. But. It's definitely really interesting to see peers that are going out a lot and are drinking a lot, and it's not in that 80-20 rule. It does impact your life. It's hard to show up for the things that do matter, whether it's school or relationships or grades or all of those things. Do you drink at all? Very occasionally. My sisters are so funny. They make fun of me. They're like, see, you're so boring. You never go out. You never do these things. So it really depends. Like I'll go out with friends like a couple times this semester. Like if it's like Halloween or something like that, I'm just really lazy. <laughs> like I'm like the thought of like going out and just myself through Philadelphia and walking to random frat in the cold. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch my TV show tonight in bed. <laughs> and I'm going to do my face mask. And this is much more fun for me. Um, yes. So again, like everyone's different and it really depends. But it also is something that I've been like super mindful of and aware of like what the relationship is. And it's mm-hmm. not something where it's It's like, I feel the need to use a strategy or I feel the need to like keep doing this compulsively. Yeah. What are your thoughts on caffeine. I'm
0: loving this 80-20 vibe. Drinking my coffee right now. (laughs) She's sipping her coffee right now. So because I like actually hearing like the research behind it, but then I want to know tangibly how is a 20-year-old who's really struggled with mental health
1: navigating life as a 20-year-old. So you'll have a coffee, Mm -hmm. clearly. Yes. What's the strategy there? So it's funny because when I was originally like really struggling with anxiety, I could not drink like a tall Starbucks coffee without having like extreme shakiness in my Thoughts were going crazy. So it's something you need to be mindful about and when I was in treatment and towards the end of treatment like everyone was making their coffee every day but I knew like mentally I still my baseline of anxiety that adding anything to that was just like complete overdrive like I needed all my sleep I needed to be keeping my stressors low caffeine was not going to be in the mix because I was already so anxious without adding that into the picture I love the taste of coffee I love a vanilla latte um and so now it's something that I really enjoy and it's a part of my routine and I wake up and I'm like I love making my coffee it's so much fun in the midday I'm like I know that it's important for me to not nap. So I have a balanced sleep schedule. So I'm like, second coffee, here we go. And so it kind of, you shift your relationship with these things, depending on what your goals are. And so I am mindful like, of what is too much caffeine. And so it's like, if I've had like three cups during finals and I'm like, okay, that's probably enough for today. But again, it's all about being mindful. And there were times where I was really strict, where I was like, if I have any coffee after 2 PM in the afternoon, I cannot sleep because I have such bad insomnia and the caffeine will be in my system for a So long, or I can't have any coffee at all because my baseline of anxiety is so high. And now it's a much more balanced relationship. And it's like, something I enjoy, I look forward to. It's part of the morning routine drinking your coffee and getting ready. And then it becomes a more positive experience. So it's all about just being mindful and then shifting your relationship with these things and not being over caffeinated during finals.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. I love the idea of just meeting yourself where you're at. I know for me personally, I have had many seasons when I could not have any caffeine. Mm -hmm. Then I had a long long season where I could do matcha or some sort of tea that had less caffeine. Yeah. And now I'm really back on to like an oat milk latte or yes. something like that and a matcha the next day. Mm-hmm. So it ebbs and flows. Yeah. What you decide to do right now doesn't necessarily mean it's what you'll need forever. A hundred percent. Yeah. Meeting yourself where it's at is usually the fastest way to heal and to get to that next space. Definitely. I have two questions for you. Yeah. The first one. So this podcast is called Raw Beauty Talks. What does raw beauty mean to you?
1: I feel like it's interesting because I think when I think of like beauty and what that means to me, it's really much more internal because my baseline for so long of how I would speak to myself and how I saw myself was just so incredibly negative. That now when you get to like the point of body neutrality or just accepting where you're at, that's a huge win. Like not to the point of like yelling affirmations at myself in the mirror, but when you're not having those negative thoughts. And what was interesting is that for me, while I did struggle with disordered eating and all those different things, especially related to appearance, a lot of it was more about me as a person and less about just appearance, how I was coping with things, how I thought about things. Why can't I just be happy? And why can't I just navigate life like everyone else can? Which honestly sometimes hurts more to say those things to yourself than being like, oh, breaking out so badly today. Like I hate how this looks to say, like, you just really have failed as a person hurts a lot. And so when I think of beauty and acceptance and embracing myself and the idea of confidence, a lot of it comes from just working back to that point of neutrality and acceptance and no longer speaking to myself in such a negative way. And a lot of that neutrality and acceptance and being okay with things also comes in the form of behaviors like loving yourself enough to practice movement and go on walks and do things like your skincare routine and things that people struggle with when they're depressed whether it's like hygiene or asking for help eating nutritious meals rather than just like what sounds good or is it binge or things like that and so it's those behaviors that allow you to have a really amazing neutral space and a really great baseline and then it's more conducive to those positive moments as well. Mm. If you could write an email and it was going to land in the inbox of every single woman in the world, what would you say? Oh my God. There's so many things. I think I wish that people were more aware of how humans experience emotions. I've been thinking about this a lot recently, that when you're overwhelmed or stressed, or you're in the worst season of life, you think that no one understands. And it's because of the nitty gritty of the situation that like, your friend did this or your parents said this or you're stressed about this specific thing, but the underlying emotions are all identical. We all experience shame, we all experience guilt, we all experience sadness and anger. And even further than that, there's primary emotions versus secondary emotions. So if you're angry, you're probably sad or shameful. And if you're anxious, fear is probably potentially something about like sadness or shame. And so Understanding that hierarchy of emotions that like what you're experiencing, if you're angry or anxious or deflecting what's really going on there and tapping into that emotion, because the more we avoid our emotions, the more we amplify. I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned. And if you don't know that it's really tough to navigate mental health challenges. So once you're aware of like what is that key emotion and I'm just going to experience it rather than avoiding it, and then understanding that everyone has those emotions and everyone can relate to them. And even if the situation is completely different, they get it. And you're not alone in that experience because we think we're so unique in our mental health challenges and our struggles. And for better or for worse, we're really not. We're really not when it comes to the thoughts we're having or the loneliness we're feeling or the shame we are experiencing. It's really, really universal. And I think that's a great part about us all being very evolutionarily wired is that these things happen for a reason and we can all relate to them. Sadie, you are
0: wise beyond your years and such a gift to so many people. You know, I hate that you had to go through this experience, but I also am just obsessed and in awe of how you're using your own struggle to give strength to so many people. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I can't wait to continue to watch you as you go through Penn. And then I can only imagine the ways in which you'll continue to change the world.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we got to do this. Thanks for taking the time to listen to
0: this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week.